invite you to open with me to God's holy word, Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking this afternoon at the Belgian Confession, Article 12. Article 12 deals with the creation of the world, but also the creation of angels and demons. But we're going to look at the first part dealing with creation. And here in Colossians chapter 1, we see the, the purpose, the way of God's creation, but also the purpose, the end, the goal of God's creation. So Colossians 1 at verse 15, and we'll read through verse 23. This, this is the word of the Lord. He, which is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. There runs a reading from God's holy word. We turn over to Article 12 of the Belgian Confession. It's on page 164 in your Forms and Prayers book. Not sure the number in the Trinity Psalter hymnal, but page 164. We're going to just be looking at the first three paragraphs as we find them on page 164 under Article 12, the creation of all things. We believe that the Father created heaven and earth and all other creatures from nothing when it seemed good to him by his word, that is to say, by his Son. He has given all creatures their being, form, and appearance and their various functions for serving their Creator. Even now he also sustains and governs them all according to his eternal providence by his infinite power that they may serve man in order that man may serve God. We'll stop our reading there and we'll focus on those three paragraphs in light of God's holy word, Belgian Confession, Article 12a. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, In the summer of 1925, the United States was enthralled with a court trial taking place in Tennessee. 
And not long before this, Tennessee passed a law banning the teaching of evolution in public schools. This is less than 100 years ago. The ACLU, which is kind of like our civil rights tribunals, wanted to challenge that law. And to do so, they needed someone to be charged with teaching evolution. John Scopes, a teacher, became the scapegoat. In what became known as the Scopes Monkey Trial, dealing with evolution, resulted in a $100 fine for Scopes and a seeming victory for both sides. And the question of that trial and the question taking place then, this debate, was about the compatibility of the Bible and evolution. In that discussion, that debate has not died down even to today. The theory of evolution is taken as truth in most circles. And the Bible is relegated to the fantasy section of the library. You want to read a whole bunch of fairy tales? Read the Bible, they might say. In more recent years, some Christians have attempted to combine the Bible and evolution together in the theory of theistic evolution, that God created the Big Bang 13 billion years ago, and God guided the process of evolution so that we now are human beings, but we evolved, so we're homo sapiens, we, we evolved through a period of changes over a long period of time from creatures that were not yet human beings. But the Belgian Confession of Faith, along with the Scriptures, teach a very different truth. And yet this has become a point that must be defended outside and inside of the Church of Jesus Christ. A danger with this is that in this debate, we might lose the purpose of God's revelation in the first place. That's the nature and the danger of a debate that can take place. You lose the focus. You lose the purpose. And it's this. Why did God make us? Why are you here? Why did God not give up on human beings? What is your ultimate purpose in life? How would you answer that? What is your purpose ultimately in life? But to bring glory to God, to worship the living God who has made us. We can look at this beautiful world around us with the purpose that we might worship God. Once again, theology, studying God's word, studying the teaching about God and his creation, theology must lead us to doxology, to praise, to worship that God has revealed himself in the Holy Scriptures. This afternoon, we're going to look at the first half of Article 12 of the Belgian Confession of Faith. And this deals simply with God's creation. And we're going to be looking at as five different statements about creation. That's why I didn't put the points in the sermon or in the bulletin. It's essentially five statements about creation. And so we'll look at this under the theme that our God created all things for his glory. Our God created all things for his glory. And so the first statement that we see is that God did not have to create. God was not obligated to create this world. Our God is eternal. God reigns in independence. None of us are independent. Maybe as independent as we feel like we are. We are not independent. We are always completely, wholly dependent upon God. 
God is not dependent. He's independent. All things depend upon God. God's independence, which is one of his attributes, which began the Belgian Confession, teaches that he has no need. So Belgian Confession, Article 12, says that God created all things, heaven and earth and all creatures, from nothing when it seemed good to him. What does that mean? What it doesn't mean is that God was lonely. God is not a creature who has emotions like human beings do. Also, God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has eternally dwelt in fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this means that there was no need for creation. He's not dependent on creation. Some have irreverently stated that God maybe was bored. But that's not true. Maybe they say he was overcrowded, therefore he needed creation to spring forth from him. That's not true. Why did God create? He created from nothing when it seemed good to him. So then if God did not need creation, why did he create heaven and earth? And though we don't want to be presumptuous to put in, into words what the mind of God was, we need to look to the scriptures. He's revealed himself, something of his purpose in the scriptures. God the Father has eternally had the Son as the object of his love. Creation then becomes for the glory of the Son. Think about that. When I preached this a couple weeks ago in, in Hamilton, I had a few people come up to me and say, I've never thought of that. God created all things for the Son. God created all things because he loved the Son. God created all things through the Son and unto the Son. The Son is the eternal object of the love of God. God made all things through him. If your Bible is open, let's look at a couple of these passages. First, let's look at John chapter 1. And John, as you know, different than the other Gospels, doesn't start with the, the birth narrative, but brings, up, brings through this idea of, of the Word of God, an eternal Word of God. John 1 at verse 1. John 1 begins the same way Genesis 1 begins. In the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, which is Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now especially notice verse 3. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. All things are made through the Son. And I'll turn back over to our scripture reading from Colossians chapter 1 at verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. And for him. Notice that last phrase. That's key. They were created for the Son. This explains something of the why of creation. All creation is pointing ahead to Christ. All creation is focused on Christ. He is the glory of the creation. God's whole purpose in creation is cosmically sun-related. And Jesus Christ 
Colossians 1 verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That reconciliation of all things goes beyond just human beings. And this is part of the Kytherian influence, a healthy aspect of it, of the redeeming of culture, of taking all things collective unto Jesus Christ. We so often view creation as centered on man. We, after all, are the crown of creation. That's true. We're the crown of the creation weak. But Colossians 1 verse 18 keeps things in perspective. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. If you want to make a verse, a life theme, this is a good one. How do you want to run your home? So that in everything he might have supremacy. Or another translation has, that he might in everything be preeminent. He's supreme. We're not supreme. He is supreme. Creation is made for the Son, through the Son, and unto the glory eternally of the Son of God, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Not man, but God himself and Jesus Christ. God did not have to create this world, but he did because he loved the Son. And by God's grace, in loving the Son, he loved us through the Son. Second, the Bible and science are not at odds with each other. These are not two things that are at odds with each other. There's not a fight between the Bible on the one hand and science on the other. Or, what are you going to do, believe the Bible or believe the science? False question, false dichotomy, wrong question. Our confession, Article 12, says we believe that the Father created heaven and earth and all other creatures from nothing. From nothing. And this is contrary to the leading scientific theories of the day. The unbelieving consensus is that matter is eternal. So the question is often as posed, as I mentioned, what are you going to believe? The Bible or science? We know that scientists have been wrong in the past. That should not surprise us. Scientists are wrong in the present. Look at the science that we've seen with COVID. And this isn't any type of bash against the government, though their scientific sources are questionable. Think about just the wearing of masks. Remember at the beginning of this COVID situation, you had to wear masks. Then we went for a period of time where the masks actually are not going to be helpful. But then they decided to wear masks again. Go back and forth that I read. So they have plexiglass all over the place in, in stores. And I read an article a few weeks ago from CBC that said actually plexiglass is probably harmful and more likely to bring COVID to these workers because there's no airflow. And This is science. It, it's science behind these, these questions. Science has been wrong in the present. It's been wrong in the past. Theologians have been wrong in the present, and theologians have been wrong in the past. People have been excommunicated from the church of Jesus Christ for heresy when they were actually right. People, obviously, have been burned to the stake by the church for false teaching when they were actually right. The church is wrong. 
even a debate on the geocentric or heliocentric view of the world. Is the sun the center or the earth the center? Somebody like Copernicus, long time ago, took serious heat by suggesting suggesting that the earth actually revolves around the sun. And all the theologians spoke up, impossible, for the argument that the earth is round. The earth is round, like a ball. It's not flat. But, the theologians might say, how can you have the four corners of the earth if the earth is round? And the debate continues. The fact of the matter is that scientists and theologians have both been wrong. But there's something that has never been wrong. There's something that has never led astray. There's something that has never erred. And it's the Holy Scriptures. It does not change. And it is truth. We ought not to discourage our children from entering the science, sciences or becoming scientists or something like that. We need Christians in all of these fields. But whether to believe the Bible or to believe science is a false dichotomy, the wrong question. Even unbelieving, God-hating scientists oftentimes come up with the right conclusions. We might argue by, by borrowing a Christian worldview, but nevertheless, even without their knowledge of it, we ought not to reject that. But when scientists teach something contrary to the scriptures, we ought not to accept it, but to reject it altogether. Beware, brothers and sisters, that we're not looking, that we're not trying to look good before an unbelieving scientific community. We want to be kind to our neighbors. We want to live at peace with all people. But our goal is not so that the world says, you know what, those church people, they're not that bad. If they come to that conclusion, fine. But that is not our goal in life. We ought to beware. Our goal, our focus, our direction must always be theologically centered unto God. Do not compromise the scriptures. Colossians, or sorry, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. All scriptures. It's the authority. It's the authority. The ultimate authority over all other authorities. It's more important than the Belgian Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, and Canons of Dort. The scriptures trump the minister, the elders. The scriptures are ultimate because their source and author is God himself. And when the world tells us something differently, measure it according to the scriptures. They don't change. Third, creation is incompatible with evolution. Creation is incompatible with evolution. Maybe this seems obvious to you, you, but it's not obvious to all Christians. Look at the second paragraph of Article 12. Since he has given all creatures their being, form, and appearance, and their various functions for serving their creator. That paragraph alone stands opposed to evolution. However, the theory of of Darwinian evolution 
did not happen until 300 years after the writing of the Belgian Confession. So obviously it's not going to be focused on that. I'm convinced that if the Belgian Confession were rewritten today, it would focus more on evolution. Because this is the debate of the day. I've talked to parents who are afraid to send their children off to university because what are they going to be taught? Evolution. I went to a Christian university. It was taught by a Christian professor. I was taught theistic evolution. When those of us who said, no, we were raised differently, this is wrong. You know what the professor said? I'm smarter than your parents. I got a PhD from MIT. Wow. Well, if you have that, you must be right then. What's at stake? Don't underestimate what the world wants from your children. You might be settled in your view of such situations, but do your children understand why this is important and why we must stand upon God's holy word? Is it simply just an academic discussion? It's far greater than that. It's far greater than that. And if you're older than I am, you probably have a better understanding of the history of this debate in Reformed churches. Especially if you left a church 25 years ago to begin a new one, or however long ago it was. Today, there are some who seek to combine creation and evolution together. But in order to do so, they undermine the teaching of the origins of the universe. Instead of a six-day creation, they posit millions of years, or billions of years, actually. Over Genesis 1 tells us that God made man in his own image on the sixth day. And so let's look back at that creation. If your Bible's open, look back to Genesis chapter 1. It's a very important phrase. You've probably read it many, many times. Maybe you've noticed it, maybe you didn't. Genesis chapter 1. I find this to actually be the most compelling argument biblically against evolution. Genesis 1, look at verse 11. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees in the land that bear fruit with its seed, according to their various kinds. And it was so. Skip down to verse 21. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. Verse 24, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. Verse 25, God made the wild animals according to their kinds. And you probably... I figured out what the phrase is. According to its kind, according to their kinds. God made each thing according to its kind. That means that God made them how they are in their essential being according to its kind. The language of species, that's that's the modern term, right? The language of species is not in the scriptures. The closest term is kind. God made dogs. God made dogs according to their kind. And boys and girls, you could probably list a whole bunch of different kinds of dogs. You probably know. Wolves are dogs. Foxes are dogs. Coyotes, German shepherds, poodles, dingoes. 
They're all dogs. And it could have happened over many years that with distance, nutrition, climate, breeding, that these animals had changed. But 50,000 years ago, 100,000 years from now, there's still going to be a dog, shall the Lord delay his return. They will still be according to their kind. Whatever it is that make a dog a dog. And a scientist could probably give you a better definition than that. But certainly has canine teeth, has fur, has four legs, wags its tail. This is a dog. And in 50,000 years, it's still going to be a dog. It might be a miniature, it might be interbred, might be a mutt. Still a dog, according to its kind. And if that dog, and the farmers probably understand this a bit better, if that dog would breed with another type of animal, its offspring would not be able to have offspring. So as a fisherman who likes to fish for muskie, if a muskie and a northern pike breed, which happens sometimes, the result is something called a tiger muskie. But the thing about a tiger muskie, it cannot have its own offspring after it. It's sterile by definition because of crossbreeding. It didn't breed in that sense in its species. God made all things out of nothing according to their kind. That phrase is repeated time and time again through Genesis 1. And so even though the Bible and science are not incompatible, creation and evolution are. And this is one of the symptoms that plagued a church that many of us left a couple of decades ago. And I've had the discussion many times, what's the big deal? Why, do, why does this matter? This certainly isn't a foundational teaching of the Scriptures. This isn't a matter of division. We can just agree to disagree. You know what? If we talked long enough, we would disagree on a number of different things. And hopefully all of those things would be like, that's fine, we're not going to break fellowship over this. What's at stake? Well, what's at stake is the scriptures themselves. The very nature of scripture. Genesis 1 and 2 become foundational. Who are you? Where are you from and where are you going? This is all answered in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. If Adam was not created first, and Paul's argument against women in office falls flat, if God didn't create all things as they are, according to their kind, but that we evolve from a lesser species now to a higher species, who are we to say that any lifestyle choice is wrong? Who are we to say that anything is wrong? Or unnatural? As soon as you undermine parts of the Scriptures, the whole tower comes crashing down. That's what's at stake. Creation is incompatible with, with Darwinian evolution. And by that I mean the evolution of the species. Things can change like dogs within their, within their kind. Right? Finches in the Galapagos Islands can have different beaks and different feathers and what, according to their kind over time. It's called macroevolution or adaptation. Things can adapt. But you cannot go from one kind to another kind over a long period of time. Fourth, creation was Trinitarian. 
So we refer to our confessions to God, the Father, our Creator, the Son, our Redeemer, and the Holy Spirit, our Sanctifier. So God the Father is the Creator. But even though the Father is attributed primarily with the creation, we know that it is, it is Trinitarian. We looked already at John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. God made all things through Christ. We see the Holy Spirit as the power of God. He was present in creation, Genesis 1, verse 2. The Spirit hovering over the sur- surface of the deep. That's, that's a sermon in itself. But for now, just know that he was active. Creation was a Trinitarian act of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And we can see this understood more deeply when we think about the purpose in creation as you recognize the covenant of redemption. Now, the covenant of redemption, if you're not familiar with that term, is, is an intra-Trinitarian covenant between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where it was deemed before the foundations of the world that the Son would be sent by the Father to redeem a people given to the Son. That the Holy Spirit would then be sent forth by the Father and the Son into the lives of God's people, etc. But God would show forth his love in ultimately sending forth Jesus Christ to save sinners. That God created the world through the Son and for the Son, that it might so glorify God that he could show his grace and righteousness in Jesus Christ. That every single sin that has ever or will ever be committed will be paid. Every single sin will be paid. It will either be paid in you and in eternity in hell or it has been paid in Jesus Christ in the gracious forgiveness we have through his precious blood. But every single sin will be paid. This is the grand plan of God's creation and redemption that Jesus Christ might be supreme, preeminent, over all, that in all things, no matter what circumstance you might find yourself in today, brothers and sisters, Christ might be supreme. The very purpose, function, direction of your life might be Christ's word, Christ in us. For as Ephesians 1 reminds us, he chose us in him from, from before the creation of the world. And then fifth, God intended to create all things with a purpose. Creation had a purpose. So we see in the third paragraph, even now, he also sustains and governs them all, that is all of his creatures, according to his eternal providence and by his infinite power that they may serve man in order that man may serve God. Now, in the next article, Article 13, it deals with God's providence, but it's coming in here. We're going to leave that that discussion, but realize God is upholding and governing and directing all things. Things are not happening at random. There's not just a random chance of what's taking place in this world. All things are directed by God. And at the end of that paragraph, we see something of the purpose of the creation. 
Ultimately, the purpose of creation is to bring glory to God, that we might praise God. All of creation, however, in doing so, in having God's glory at the end, all creation is to serve man so that he may serve God. Do you see that phrase? Maybe you've never thought about it like that. And by his infinite power, that they, all the creatures, may serve man in order that man may serve God. When God placed Adam in the garden, God told Adam that he was to rule the garden, to have dominion in the garden, to fill the earth and subdue it. He gave him a mandate, a job in creation. And that job in creation would have been gone a lot further than simply just naming the animals, though that was important, but that he would be Lord of the garden, in some sense representing God's own authority in the garden. God made Adam the head of the covenant, which is why we're sinful in Adam, even though we didn't actually eat of the fruit. How is that fair? Because you were represented by somebody. That somebody was Adam. And when he sinned, you sinned. The good news of grace is that you have another covenant head that will represent you, Jesus Christ. That when he died, you died. When he was raised, you were raised. But God gave Adam this tremendous calling, this gracious responsibility in the garden to fill it, to subdue it. And it's that creation mandate that continues to remind us of our need to continue to work and to grow and to develop. The fact that we can, as human beings, take resources from the ground, cultivate them, we can can take plants, and we can extract things from plants, and then build something out of them. I mean, if you didn't know these things, and somebody told you that this thing here comes from a plant, the tire on your truck, that that comes from a plant, now, that I can't imagine how that would come from a plant. Well, in school, you learned about a rubber tree and how this all... That we exercise dominion. The fact that there are farmers in this congregation, and there's probably no white-tailed deer farmers here. Why not? Well, because white-tailed deer are not easily cultivated. They're going to jump over fences. But cows, they're easily cultivated. Chickens are easily cultivated. And so what we've decided in time is what animals we can use for the purpose of meeting the ends. That we might have food, we might have drink, that we might have animals to pull our plows, animals to do work for us, ride on horses, etc. All of these things, which maybe you've never thought that deeply about, all of these things are part of subduing the creation around us. And if you've ever had a vegetable garden... A vegetable garden, unless you have a really big one, oftentimes isn't that cost-effective. But it is good. It teaches important truths. And maybe you just like working with your hands outside. But you have a nice vegetable garden. You've weeded the garden. You look at this garden. You have your first collection of beans and tomatoes. You think, I did that. In that little plot of ground, that little plot of dirt, I planted those seeds. I watered them. I weeded them. Whatever you did. And this is what I have. Well, that's a small picture of exercising dominion in creation. 
You took seeds from another plant. You probably bought them out of a pack or something. You took seeds out of another plant. You put them in the ground so that they could continue to develop. You plant one seed of corn, and it could come up with three ears of corn. I don't know how many kernels there are in a ear of corn, but let's say 100. 300-fold is what that, what that produced. That's part of cultivating. But that's part of the creation itself. God has given to human beings this mandate to cultivate, to develop, to grow. And we should continue to do this. This is part of the, the focus of education. So God gives to us good gifts that we might use them, that through the things that we make, through the things God has given, we might serve God. So even in a fallen society like we live in today, God's glory is not really desirable, it's possible. But the same good gifts can become sin. One thing could be used for good, and that same exact thing could be used for evil. Take a car. I figure most of you probably drove here today. Even if you could walk, it's pretty cold outside, maybe. Your car could have taken you 20 minutes to come to worship. And if you walked... Well, I don't know how long they would take it. You would have left, left this morning. It would have taken you hours. But what a blessing to have a vehicle to bring you to worship. And yet maybe you saw in the news around Christmas time, somebody took a car, and there was a Christmas parade in Wisconsin, and somebody drove that car through a crowd of people and ran people over. It's horrible. They turned that thing, which was good, a vehicle, into a weapon. The good creation, the good cultivation becomes a curse when wicked motives are behind it. God has given us all of these things. We domesticate cows, pigs, sheep, etc. for food, for work. So we thank God for these things. Cultivating and feeding the hungry brings glory to God. And yet we live today not in that different of a time a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago. But especially today. Today people continue to ask and they seek the purpose and meaning of life. Why are we here? What's the purpose of it all? To what end? Maybe pleasure. Maybe happiness is the point of life. What will give you lasting happiness? Maybe it's pleasure. Maybe it's the things of this world, but it won't. It can't. It can never satisfy. Nothing in this life can bring ultimate fulfillment. It must come from the Creator. So when we think about God's creation of the heavens and the earth, recognize, brothers and sisters, that God has created this world so that Christ might save sinners. It's all Christ-directed that we might give glory to God. And as sinners are being saved, they are called to use this world for the glory of God. So let that be our prayer. Not merely our confession, but let that, that, let that be the prayer of our lives, that God might equip each one of us to be used in the very place he puts us in, that we might exercise the dominion God gives to us, but that in an all Christ might have the supremacy. Amen.
Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our position and place in this world, for your mercy and grace to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you've given to men and women your image bears the call to exercise dominion. And yet, Lord, we see the horrible consequences of the fall into sin, a misuse of your good gifts, whether it's with the abuse of, of gifts, of drugs, of alcohol, of whatever it is, crimes. Father, we, we pray that you might keep us from this, first of all, but that you might make us living witnesses of your grace, that in our lives, in our, in our positions and places, in our tasks and callings, we might seek to bring preeminence, supremacy to the name of Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us and equip us to that end. We pray that you might work in our hearts and our lives. We might apply your word each day to, uh, to our hearts, to our lives, that we are sinners saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. As we leave this place, as we continue this, this day and this week, at school, at work, at home, wherever it is you call us, Help us to give glory to your most holy name. Hear us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.